This morning I wanted to follow up on the three messages that I did previous to last Sunday. Uh, I, I, I was really encouraged to hear David Jung come uh, and preach. And, you know, if you don't know David, I knew him when he was in college, like freshman year, very raw. And uh, he was part of our church plant team uh, to San Jose. And so seeing him and uh, Kim and their three boys now, uh, yeah, just it's such a blessing, and uh, just very thankful to see that God is leading him in the direction that he probably never anticipated, and that was to go into pastoral ministry. Uh, I, I don't know if he shared he his father is a pastor too, so I think anyone who's especially the son of a pastor, I think the last thing you want to do is become a pastor. Uh, because you know what, what it, what's going on with all that. So uh, I'm just really encouraged to see uh, David move that direction. Well, uh, you could say that this is the fourth message of the Essential Church series. Because uh, if, if you remember the last three messages, um, I wanted to really make sure our church would both be reminded, but also even challenged uh, like, what do we see the church as? Do we understand that it's the institution where God's people gather around his word so that really through the Holy Spirit, we would work together as a church? You know, we're called to be uh, a testimony, a collective testimony. It's not just our individual lives. It's together. How do we fulfill what we say we represent? And that's our mission to make disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, the vision to plant churches for the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the passion to love God and people with the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Overall, he is the head of this church, Lighthouse Bible Church LA. And, you know, in Matthew 28, when it says that he is all authority in heaven and on earth. Do we live in light of that authority? Uh, we call him Lord and Master. That makes us his slaves, his bond servants. And so when we think about collectively, how are we a witness to this world? Uh, and I, I think I tried to make a very clear point. Jesus Christ, it's all about Christ. Right? I mean, he defines who we are our identity. He defines our purpose. He defines our morals and values. He defines our goals and aspirations. And ultimately and comprehensively, Jesus defines everything both in life and in death for all eternity. You know, if you're following what's going on around our world and you know that there are places where there is war taking place, where people's homes are literally being destroyed, and for us, it seems so far away. Um, you know, I have a friend in Israel who was just kind of giving us a, a, a live report of what's going on. And uh, people are dying. You know, you wake up one morning and, you know, the building next to you just got hit by a rocket and, and people are killed. And for us, we wake up in the morning and we're like, what's for breakfast? You know, or maybe you don't even eat breakfast. You know, we're just kind of like, uh, well, you know, I got stuff to do today. And, and the prospect of facing eternity is not something that we really think about. I think as you get older, one of the things you do start to uh, 
contemplate is uh, death. Because it's a reality. You know, when you're younger, I don't think you think of it much because, you know, I mean, I was that way too. You know, you kind of feel like you're immortal. You, you don't worry about death. You know, you, you're busy. You got things to take care of. You got places to go, people to see and so forth. But there will come a day when this life will be over. And everything will come down to just one issue. Did you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? Did you trust him for the gift of eternal life? I mean, I think if you have grown up in a Bible teaching church, you understand that it's not because of any works that merit you favor before God. It's not because you are better than any other person. I mean, we're always going to find people that are worse than us, right? That's not too hard. I mean, if anything, you could just point to Hitler, say, at least I'm better than him. We are not somehow going to be lucky and find our way into heaven. It's really by the grace of God alone that's been extended to us, uh, even as we sang on that first hymn. You know, grace, grace. You know, while we were sinners, God sent Christ. And it's only by that grace extended to us that we then respond through faith, that we trust in Christ alone. And we believe these things because we say that the scriptures alone are the final authority that defines the way of salvation. Now, the, the, these are not things that should be too complicated. But what I've wondered, even just over the past week, and if you've been doing your Bible reading uh, through Hebrews, uh, it's a very sobering portion the last couple of weeks where the writer of Hebrews challenges those who he's writing to and saying, uh, are you dull of hearing? And three times he says, do not harden your heart like the Israelites did. And, and what's really crazy about the Israelites is they saw God visibly manifested, right? I mean, think about it. When uh, he led them with a pillar uh, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, uh, the 10 plagues in Egypt, uh, the provision of food, manna every day. Uh, and then they complained about not having meat, so God sent them meat, like literally growing out of their nostrils. I mean, God made it abundantly clear that he was there for them. And yet it says that they hardened their hearts. I mean, that should, that should sober you. You know, because one of the things I thought about is even for our church, um, are there those who are dull of hearing? In other words, you hear, but nothing happens. Like they're, they're just words that go in one ear and out the other, and life doesn't change. You know, he, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, you're, you're still like babies. You're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat by now. Some of you should be teachers by now. And, and I think any pastor will talk about this. Uh, the challenging thing about any church situation is, are people actually growing in their relationship with God? I mean, a lot of the challenges come in how, how you find out people understand doctrine. And probably one of the most uh, 
simple yet challenging doctrines is what is love? You know, it is a doctrine. It's not a touchy-feely thing. It's not an opposition to truth. You know, some people try to pit truth against love and say things like, well, the Old Testament, God is all about, you know, justice. The New Testament is all about love. Uh, No, he's all about justice and love all the way through. Paul Washer writes this, we have developed a distorted and very convenient view of love that never upsets anyone. It is a love without truth, conviction, or the guts to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. It is a love that would let a person walk unwarned into hell rather than confront them in their sin, wound their fragile self-esteem, or tell them the truth. Now, if you've ever heard Paul Washer you know, preach, you know that he's not shy about just being very direct. But I think this is very true. You know, We live in a time where uh, self-esteem is such a priority, and people many times show that they're just actually very fragile. Why? Because if you want to confront someone with the truth, they're like, how could you do that? Like, how unloving. And no one wants to upset anyone. Now, you know, I want you to know that on my part as a preacher, you don't want to ever use the pulpit simply as a place to scold or reprimand people, to drop a hammer to intimidate people. I mean, that's just wrong. But we also live at a time where the truth does need to be presented that challenges you, especially in your, uh, and this is myself as well, the propensity to be so self-absorbed. Like we are at the center of how we see everything. That's why when people talk about love, what people are actually saying is, well, do you love me the way I want to be loved? Are you going to accommodate me, serve me, adore me, worship me? I mean, it, it, it just sounds so almost absurd, but we might almost want someone to just bow down and say, I worship and adore you. You might just think you should because that's what I deserve. No, we're not going to say that, because that just sounds almost ridiculous. But it really is about my life being fulfilled in all the ways that I want to be satisfied, so I get what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it. That's our default thinking. Now, what's the problem with this kind of thinking? It simply cannot coexist with others who are thinking exactly the same way, right? If everybody here, like just here in this room, were to say, love me, love me, like look at your neighbor, look at your neighbor, okay? And you were just to say, love me, love me. Now, who's gonna end up getting loved? Nobody, right? Because we're all waiting for someone to love who? Me. I mean, this whole idea of self-love, I mean, it's really at the heart of what you see going on in our world. It it explains and justifies everything. Now, what really is the, the problem here is that you're in direct contradiction then to the truth of the gospel. Your self esteem is not more important than your eternal destiny. I mean, that's why, 
you know, if you really are sober in understanding that your life could end at any moment, and are you then ready to face eternity? Are you ready to face God who will judge you for your sins, hold you accountable? That's why you can't afford to be complacent about this. I think about this every time I get on a plane. I don't know if you do this, but I do. I wonder if I will be on the news. I won't get to watch it, but it's because the plane crashed. I, I think about that all the time. And especially when we're landing. You know, when you land and you hit, you hit that bump, and sometimes the landings are rough. And I think today, today could be the day where the plane flips, you know. And the only thing is I won't get to watch the news. I'll be the news. And I don't want to be the news. But you think, well, am I ready to face eternity? The reason I bring that up is because it's relevant to being a peacemaker. If you want to know what the Bible has to say about pursuing peace, being a peacemaker is only possible if you are a true child of God who is at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to be justified by faith in order to have peace with God. Peace with God only comes through what Christ has done for us. He is the one who is the basis for our justification. So then, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, Jesus, when he was going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and specifically through the Beatitudes, the first part of Matthew chapter 5, he's describing people who belong to his kingdom. Now, the real question is, are you actually part of his kingdom? Are you a child of God? If you want to help promote reconciliation with others, you need to first be reconciled with God. You cannot be at peace with anyone else if you are not at peace with God. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this ministry of reconciliation. Starting in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So it starts there. Are you a new creation in Christ? Now, here's what's really tricky. You could go to church for your whole life and not be a new creation. You could actually appear to everybody else as if you are a Christian when you actually aren't. Now, where do we get that? I mean, Jesus talks about that, right? He talks about the parable of the wheat and tares. And the wheat and tares, they look so similar. You wouldn't be able to know from your own perspective what, what was wheat, what was tare. But eventually it will reveal itself. Now, going on in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, it says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have been given this particular ministry, a ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
So if you are reconciled, you are then given this ministry of reconciliation. You're given a word of reconciliation. Verse 20, so then we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents their country in a different land. And that's what we are. We don't belong to this world. We're citizens of heaven. So we are ambassadors for Christ. And it gives this very interesting picture. As ambassadors, God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I think the wording is very interesting. God pleading, we beg. That's what we represent. The pleading of God for the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. So we, on our part, beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's, that's the priority, that we have a word that we share. You know, um, I, I forget where it was from, maybe some movie or something, but you know, when someone would say something to go, word, right, word. Like, what do, you, what do you mean by that when you just go, word? Well, we, we have something we can specifically refer to, word of reconciliation. I mean, if you've got a word to say, that's what we as Christians have been given. That describes the ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors, so we speak on behalf of the one that we represent, Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. And how is it that it would say God is pleading through us? I mean, we can understand God is commanding through us, and that's still true. But there's this, this tone. God is pleading. God is pleading. So we are begging. We are begging. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, if you confess that you are a Christian, what you are saying is, I have been reconciled to God through Christ. I recognize that God made Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, but he took our sin on our behalf so that we then, in exchange, would receive the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. That's why we can't be reconciled on our own. It's only the righteousness of Christ that is the basis for our reconciliation. If you recognize that to be a precious truth, that's at the heart of you having a relationship with God. You are now reconciled to him while you were once an enemy, dead in your sin. You are reconciled to God in Christ. Therefore, you are at peace with God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not at peace with God. And if we know that someone is not a Christian, what we really should be concerned about is pleading and begging and giving them the word of reconciliation. That is at the heart of the gospel. God has provided 
through Christ, the payment for the penalty of our sin. He died the death that we deserved. He offers the righteousness of his perfect life in exchange for my complete sinfulness. It's what's called a great exchange, his righteousness for my sin. But it must, must be on his terms. And I, I think this is the challenge for anything that we represent in our faith. It's not on our terms. We are called to repent. In other words, we need, we need to turn from one direction to the other direction, the opposite direction. We no longer are living for sin, but we are looking to Christ. We confess that we deserve judgment, but the earnest desire of our heart is for forgiveness. But we know we can't do it on our own. That's why we place our faith. There is nothing you can do to gain even one inch towards salvation. It is a complete placing of trust in Christ. Only Christ can save you. You know, he's saying earlier, in Christ alone, that word alone makes all the difference. You could say in Christ, and I appreciate Christ, I even enjoy Christ, I'll listen to Christ, I'll do things for Christ, and in the end, not know Christ. That's the scary thing. And this is at any church that you have people coming every Sunday and they actually don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, when you repent, you place your faith and you follow Christ because you love him. Because he first loved you. You no longer live for yourself. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5 when it says, for the love of Christ controls us. So that we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. You know, when, you, when, when Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, that's at the heart of what defines you. Who are you living for? Yourself or for Christ? Now, that's a challenge every day. I mean, like tomorrow morning, God willing, we all wake up. What are you going to do? Who are you going to be living for? You will be making a choice every second of who you're living for. So this comes first. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted Christ by faith? And will you follow him? That's really the foundation. You see, when you can then claim adoption as a child of God, you know, one of the things I know we're all praying for Josh and Jane for the, their adoption uh, of three kids, you know. Like every time I think about that, I just go, oh my, that's just wild. I mean, one kid is enough to overwhelm anyone, right? I mean, in one shot, they're going to have three. And I'm like, well, you know, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't make it sound so crazy, but, you know, but it is, right? But that's why I keep telling them. That's why we're going to all be here, right, to... Support them. I can't wait. I can't wait to meet these kids. They, they, they might be really scared of me, you know. I mean, uh, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, do my best to welcome them and to love them. But what do we recognize? We recognize when someone is adopted, they're someone's child. When you are reconciled to God and he is now a reconciled heavenly father to you, you are now an adopted son or daughter of God. You belong to the family of God, the household of God. So the expectation now is that you are going to live 
reflecting that relationship. If you are a Christian, you reflect God the Father, his character, his kingdom, his righteousness, his love, his peace. That's why we have the peacemaker pledge. Now, you know, you should, if you're a member, you have heard this so many times, right? The four G's, the four G's, and uh, I hope that you never forget it. The first G, glorify God. And uh, I've put three passages there. Those are the three maybe key passages that you should kind of go over and review and be reminded. First Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. So peacemaking kind of falls under that. That's part of the whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. And that's the most important G, right? God's glory is at stake in all things. Is that my greatest concern? You know, sometimes I, I, I wonder, because we, of all people in the whole world, living in Southern California, are so spoiled. You know, when uh, we're having an elders retreat, we'd have a conversation as to where will we go eat next. That could take forever. Why? Because there's so many places. So many, and they all sound so good. We have that luxury to spend hours deciding where to go eat. And then we go to Yelp, and we look at all the reviews. We've got all the pictures. We look at the menus. And then we go, oh, that looks really good. Oh, but let's go to the next choice. Oh, that looks even better. So are you concerned about the glory of God in that process? It's kind of hard to think about that. How do you think about the glory of God in choosing where to go eat? Well, one thing definitely that reveals itself is uh, you see people who have very strong opinions about where they want to go to eat. Like, I want to go here. No, I don't want to go there. I ate there yesterday. It doesn't matter if anyone else wants to go there. I ate there yesterday. Therefore, we are not going there tomorrow, today. That's it. There's no discussion then I would like to maybe go, hmm, is the glory of God behind that? It kind of sounds like me, 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 me. I mean, just take that for anything else you do. In Ephesians 3, 20, 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, there is very specific to him be the glory in the church. And why, why do we think about that? Well, it's because it's his church. And are we living in such a way that shows that he is the one that is doing the far more abundant beyond all that we ask or understand? And are we passing that on to the generations after us? You know, I mentioned uh, in 20 years, uh, our grandson, Benny, will be 22. You know, it just boggles me to think about that. It's like, wow. I mean, his hairstyle today makes him even look a little bit older. So I just go, whoa. I mean, it's weird. I'm just looking. He's like, well, you know, he's starting to talk more. I, I'm just looking forward to taking him to a Dodger game, introducing him to Dodgers history, 
baseball history, sports history, world history. I have a lot to share with them. But the most important thing, <laughs> I can be so excited. I think I'm looking forward to talking about things like sports, ice cream, burgers. Uh, but will I be most excited to share about the glory of Christ? I mean, you gotta, that's a choice you have to actually think and consider and make. You might actually think it sounds a little boring. I mean, even this past week, you know, I got the chance to babysit him. And so I was like, you know what? I should probably sing some, like, Christian songs with him. <laughs> so, we, you know, we're singing them. To, oh, well, I'm singing them. He's listening to me singing. Then I'm looking for videos where uh, Mama is singing. So all the special music. We went through all the special music that Kara did. And he's just, Mama, Mama. And what I'm thinking is, yeah, I want him to see Mama singing songs that show she loves Christ. So w w that has to be very deliberate. But that has to be something you're concerned with here at our church. Do you want to contribute to Christ receiving glory in the church? And then lastly, Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Chris Mueller says this is our highest calling, to glorify God, showing off his character, explaining his gospel. Do we see that as our calling? You know, this has to be like real time, like present. Not, not like that's a nice thing to think about later. Uh, you know, Chris Mueller texted me this morning and said, praying for you as you preach. And then it's a reminder, okay, I, I, better, I better make sure I'm preaching God's word. And I better be preaching to glorify God. Because that falls under all of this. And it's not to impress you. It's not to try to move people emotionally. It's to say, are we glorifying Christ? Second G, get the log out of your own eye. Matthew 7, 3 says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now we've gone through this many times. Sometimes there is a speck in someone's eye. Okay, Go ahead, look at your neighbor, look for the speck. Do you see the speck? It's really small, so you're going to have to look really hard. Okay? But there's a speck, and you're like, oh, I better get that speck out of their eye. Right? And then I think, well, um, you know, let, let's do it this way. You know, you have this, this in your eye, and you're like, you better get that speck out of your eye. And they look at you, and you, you have, I don't even know what you call it, you know, a little mini table or something in your eye. You might want to take that out of your eye if you're going to help take the speck out of my eye. You know, sometimes the church gathering is like, it's just a gathering of logs. Because all of us got logs and we're bumping into each other with each other's logs as we're trying to tell others, hey, get your life right. Or like, look at your sin. You're the problem. Well, 
have you taken responsibility to get the log out of your own eye? Yes, there is a responsibility to help our brothers and sisters. Yes, we can point out things. That's not the issue. The issue is, though, do you got something that makes it even more difficult for you to be able to do that? I mean, that starts at home, right? I've often shared, uh, it even starts with your dog, right? How How do you treat your dog? Now, some people, admittedly, they treat their dogs really nice. They treat them much better than even people. How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your children? How do you treat your fellow church members? Do you take responsibility for your part? Third, gently restore. Gently restore. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, if you just look at Galatians 5, before that, Paul writes about walking by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh, in verse 17 of chapter 5, sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, if you go to verse 20, it talks about some of these deeds of the flesh, and there's a whole list, but I want to highlight the ones that are related to conflict. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. I mean, Paul goes as far as to say, I've forewarned you, and I've forewarned you again, that you, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's a big challenge. If you have a pattern of outbursts of anger, that should be concerning. Because that's not what characterizes someone who inherits the kingdom of God. I mean, men, think about this. Sometimes men are easily justifying, well, you know, I'm just a man. It's almost as if you're trying to say, well, I'm just a brute that can't handle or can't help, but just have outbursts of anger. No, that's called sin. It's called walking in the flesh. It's never, never justifiable. I mean, ladies as well. You know, sometimes in premarital, you know, uh, that's the first time I'll probably hear uh, uh, the ladies kind of confess that they're, they're having struggles with the guy. Now, granted, guys are not easy to deal with, right? I'm a guy, so my wife knows. But do you have outbursts of anger and say, well, I just need to make sure they understand how I feel? I mean, that, that might be in like 4th John or uh, First Fleshalonians. I mean, some other Bible. I don't know where you get that, but that's not in here. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
So if you belong to Christ Jesus, you crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become those with vain glory. You know, when you have outbursts of anger and you fail to show gentleness, it's all about you. You're actually... Just in this, under this description of one who is living for vain glory. And Paul says, we should not become those with vain glory. I mean, I can't help but think, uh, you know, one of the things I have as an opportunity to help other pastors and churches is I find, to find out what's going on at the churches. And it's so sad. I mean, the conflicts that take place, the friendships that are broken. I mean, I've experienced that as well. But, but the, the one thing that really does stand out is when there are outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger. I mean, think about what we show our children. If you have outbursts of anger at home with your spouse or even against your children, now, sometimes you can get pretty frustrated, right? Sometimes kids do things that are not helpful. You know, they might uh, break things. They don't listen. Uh, they might miss the toilet when they're going to the bathroom when you're trying to teach them, you know, potty train, all that kind of oh, So many things that could drive you up the wall. But does it result in anger and an outburst of anger? Do I show gentleness I mean, there's the rest of the fruit of the Spirit there too, and it's not to say that they're not as important. But in Galatians 6.1, if you're going to confront someone, it says, you who are spiritual, do so with gentleness. Now, one of the hard things to do in confronting someone, uh, especially if they have offended you directly, is to respond with Gentleness. But God's glory is at stake, right? Do we want to reflect the character of our Savior? Lastly, last G, go and be reconciled. Matthew 5, 23 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So again, you know, the context there, you're at corporate worship. And you remember that your brother has something against you. There is a priority for you to pursue reconciliation. That you on your part pursue it. I mean that's why, you know, from week to week, even as we take communion. And this is where maybe we can sort of give a practical application. It's for you to think about. Before you take communion, and you know someone has something against you. Have you pursued reconciliation? I mean, that is part of who we should be because why we are called to be peacemakers. Now, uh, the scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I'm putting under the second point called the peacemaker, peacebreaker problem. And uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And in verse 17, it says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, so Paul's writing this to the Corinthian church, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. 
Now, now when I hear verse 17, this is what I hear, um, for better or for worse. Now, when you come to church, what happens? We come for better or for worse. But some people do not come for the better, but for the worse. In In other words, they're contributing it to being the worse. Like, you can help either make it better or worse. The question is, how are you contributing to this? He says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. So Paul's saying, you know, when you come together, you're coming and there are divisions. And if you go back to chapter one of first Corinthians, uh, it's very clear. There are divisions. There are factions. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. The more spiritual ones, I'm of Jesus. There's always that group. But they're really not. They're just creating divisions. Now here's the interesting verse, verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, um, Andy and I, we went to the Carousels Conference last year, and uh, Lance Quinn, who was a good friend of mine, preached a message on this passage. And and it's not that I didn't hear this before, but it really stood out to me. While the reality of conflicts can be difficult and heartbreaking, God actually uses it to show those who are approved by him and those who are not approved. So the question is, who are the approved? Well, One, when there is division and conflict, do you practice the peacemaker pledge? Do you seek to glorify God? Are you humble enough to admit your own faults, take ownership for your own sin, get the log out of your own eye? Those who are approved are the ones who show they walk in the Spirit. They're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Those who show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those who are approved are the ones who keep Christ front and center. You don't make it about yourself and your own agenda. You see, the Corinthian church, that's what they were doing. I mean, the particular context of 1 Corinthians 10 is that they are making a mess of the Lord's table. Right? They practice something called a love feast where they would actually gather together as a, a church to have a meal. And they weren't, some of them weren't sharing their food. <laughs> you know, as a parent, when you tell your kids share, sharing is caring. There are adults who don't care because they don't share. That's what they were doing. And the worst was they were getting drunk during communion. Okay? Now, uh, this is grape juice, so it'd be very hard to get drunk off of this. But can you imagine getting drunk during communion? I mean, like, what do you have to do to do that? That's just crazy. I mean, uh, you bring your own, I don't know, two-gallon jug, fill it with whiskey or something, and then down it, and then you're just drunk at church. Like, there's no shame. There's no consideration. So when Paul writes, whether you eat or drink, I mean, that's the immediate context there. But even whatever you do, don't be like the Corinthian church. Are you the source of divisions and factions? 
Now, someone is. The question is, who? Now, that's a serious question. I, I, I wouldn't want to make this a competition. Who's going to be the one to divide? Who's going to be the one to introduce factions? You see, Paul had to admonish them. That's why he's saying this. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, I just sometimes wonder, you know, you might not think this directly, but in your coming and in, say, being someone who complains or someone who is partial or whatever it might be, you're not contributing to the unity of the church. You're actually contributing to division and factions. I mean, the biggest approval issue is, are you approved before God? I mean, his approval is what matters most, right? And when you think about conflicts, how you reveal yourself in the midst of conflicts will show whether you're someone who seeks God's approval or not. Now, the last point, the peacemaker pursuit. There are just two thoughts I want to leave with you. One, in your pursuing peace, you're not going to always be able to see it accomplished. Right? That's why Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. And it's interesting there when it says being at peace with all men, I mean, that should be the ongoing characteristic quality of who you are. You're always in the pursuit of being at peace with others as much as it's up to you. That's who you should be, a peacemaker. Now, the, the, the caveat is this, if possible, which implies it's not always possible to be at peace with everyone. Not because you don't desire it, because the other, other party won't cooperate. So that's why he says, so far as it depends on you. As much as you can do, you do that. And then it says, being at peace with all men. It was interesting when I was at the Kansas City uh, church. Um, I was preaching through all this, and it was very clear that the word all was mentioned often. Like in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said what? All authority has been given to him. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here it says, being at peace with all men. So what's really the message here? We don't make exclusions. When it comes to all the relationships that we have, we seek to be at peace. Now the reality is we will not be at peace with all men. We live in a fallen world. There are conflicts even amongst Christians that don't get resolved. But it should always be your earnest desire to pursue peace. Why? Because we, as the children of God, are called to be peacemakers. Now don't be a peace faker who pretends. Okay? That's not being a peacemaker. If you just pretend to be at peace when you're really not at peace, 
If you want to avoid the hard work of peacemaking, you are a peace faker. But especially don't be a peace breaker who unapologetically and unashamedly breaks the peace and keeps it broken. You know, that's the sad thing. There are some people who refuse to pursue peace. As hard as it is, I mean, in my mind, there are certain people right now that I I don't have things resolved. And it is sometimes paralyzing to see them. It is. But then I have to ask myself, well, if there was opportunity, would I pursue peace? Oh, man, that's hard. But I, I would hope that that's what I would do. Don't be a peace forsaker who runs away from conflict. You know, that's what some people do. They leave a church because they don't want to deal with it. Recognize their limitations. Okay. So as much as it depends on you and the peacemaker pursuit, you do that, but recognize their limitations. Not all conflicts will be resolved. The reality sometimes is conflict will introduce such pain and hurt that it feels almost impossible to recover. And humanly speaking, it really is. I mean, you look at what's going on over in the Middle East. It's hard to believe that there could even be the possibility of peace in the Middle East. You know, when my girls were uh, young, I I would go, hey, peace in the Middle East. Just randomly. There's no other context. It's just peace in the Middle East. And uh, I even did that to uh, Benny one time. Because I do, I, I end my time with him with peace. I'm trying to teach him how to do peace. And he'll be like, or sometime, one time he did this. And I was like, whoa. But no, there will never be peace in the Middle East apart from Christ. There will never be peace even in our personal relationships without Christ. We might not even see peace this side of heaven. But as far as it's up to me, as much as it depends on me, if possible, you pursue peace. But don't forget this. Remember that while we were yet sinners, and that's why I spent that time at the beginning, we were the ones who were rebellious sinners against God. We were enemies of God. He is the one who broke our heart of stone. He is the one through his kindness drew us to repentance so that we would be saved from our sins, be reconciled with our creator, be adopted into the family of God, and then calls us to be peacemakers. A few years ago, we had a, a, a all-church retreat where Dr. Street talked about peacemaking and conflict resolution, and he talked about the issue of transactional forgiveness. And uh, I was reading an article this week where the, the challenge of how people understand that, I mean, the idea basically is this. You need to ask for forgiveness in order for forgiveness to be extended. If you don't ask for forgiveness you can't actually have forgiveness take place. Now, some people will say, well, can't you just unconditionally forgive? The challenge with having this thought of unconditional forgiveness is then, are you actually dealing with the sin? 
uh, you know, there's this uh, concept called universalism, where people, there are some people who say, well, can't God just forgive everybody? Like, why does he have to have this judgment against sin? Can't he just forgive everyone? Th- this, is, this is to take the idea of forgiveness and destroy the whole point of it. You see, forgiveness is only necessary because of the reality of sin. Sin must be addressed. There must be repentance of sin, a confession of sin, so that there can be reconciliation, so that there can be restoration. You see, if you say that's not necessary, then there's no point to our Christianity. There is absolutely no point. If there's no penalty for sin, there's no need for forgiveness. If there's no need for forgiveness, there's no need for peacemaking and pursuing reconciliation. If there's no need for reconciliation, then we didn't need Jesus to die on the cross. The entirety of the gospel message is then undermined. The reason why the gospel is good news is because there's bad news. If the bad news is removed, there's no need for good news. So you need to be careful if you insist on an unconditional forgiveness that you you think should just be given irrespective of the repentance and confession, the need for repentance and confession of sin. But sin is the reason why there is a breaking of peace. And that's why it's so important for us as Christians to understand like how we see this. But there are limitations. We will not see forgiveness always be transacted. But, let's say it this way, you should still always have an attitude of forgiveness. In other words, you should not be living in bitterness and resentment because there is a lack of forgiveness being transacted. That's just part of the reality of life. So in the end, what do we do? We pray. We pray. We trust the Lord to work all things together for good. Even the unresolved conflicts and situations that, humanly speaking, we see as impossible to reconcile. Where do we get that? Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. See, again, you see all. God is orchestrating even the unresolved things for good. Now, as we prepare for communion, uh, I want to leave you with this thought. Uh, I don't say these things because they're easy to do. They are very hard to do. Uh, I think people think that I find peacemaking easy because I talk about it a lot. No, it's one of the hardest things to do. Uh, I I wrote my my doctoral dissertation on it, not because I have something so novel to offer. It's just to say this is such a problem that needs to be addressed. And it's really hard. Uh, I think there are days where I get so discouraged about it and I just, I, I feel like the life has been sucked out of me. 
and I don't want to do it. Like, why bother? Why bother trying to pursue peace when even your very attempts are completely crushed? That, that's one of the things that's been hard. And, and, and I think the hardest thing is, and then on top of that, they yell at you. Uh, I was sharing in Kansas City. I said, uh, serving in the Korean church actually prepared me for that because I just got yelled at, and I don't even know why. I was getting yelled at at church in front of everybody. <laughs> so you're kind of like, why are they yelling? I mean, can't you just talk normally? Even if you disagree or if you have something to confront. But even that, what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. I mean, we are called to walk in the Spirit. That's why we take communion often. We need to go back to what is most basic, what is most fundamental to our faith, and that's Jesus, what he did for us. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. I mean, isn't that interesting? Yeah, if you need the elements, Sandy will come by. Make sure you get them from. The very night Jesus was being betrayed, he then takes the bread and the cup. So talk about conflict. This is the worst kind of conflict. It's betrayal. And Jesus, on the very night in which he's being betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You know, he says this is the new covenant. There, there's something about this idea of a covenant that's actually relational. He's saying there's this covenant that is being established through what I'm going to do, and that is to offer my body, my blood on your behalf. So as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. He dies in the midst of betrayal. He dies to establish the new covenant, which is to bring us into a reconciled relationship with our God. Take a moment right now to just bow your heads to pray.